<clears throat> last night I got to watch the uh, <clears throat> I watched the Floyd Mayweather Manny Pacquiao fight and if you saw that it's quite a spectacle going on 16,000 people in this arena with all kinds of lights and praise ungodly amount of money that was being given to this event given, being given to these two fighters what I saw there was just an unbelievable amount of honor being stowed, bestowed on an event and on two men. As I was watching that, I was thinking, all that honor belongs to God. And it just kind of broke my heart and Manny Pacquiao is a strong believer, and it was so ironic because he was standing there with a T-shirt on that said, Jesus is the name of the Lord. Jesus, the name of Jesus was right there in the middle of that ring, and all this honor and glory and worship and affirmation and worth was being put on something other than him. The people missed it. 16,000 people there missed it. I'm telling you, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is here right in the middle of this place this morning. I don't want, I don't want to miss it. Last week, I got up here at this time and I said, there are some of you here, every one of you here, I believe God has called here this morning specifically for a reason. Some of you, probably more so than others, you may not have, know why you're here. You, you got up just feeling drawn somehow. <laughs> and during the week, I actually heard from people that said, that was me. I got up and just felt this urge that I had to be at church, people that hadn't been here in a long time. And then they heard something from God and knew exactly why they were supposed to be here. I'm telling you, God's not done. There's others of you here today. God brought you here for a reason. You don't know what that is. But I pray this morning that you won't miss that. That you will get what God has for you. That song that we were singing before this last one, that holy, holy God was taken straight out of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah was brought up into heaven through a vision and he, was, he saw God in his holiness. And all he could do was just describe the worth and honor and glory on him that he is due. And in light of God's holiness, the first thing that jumped out at him was how sinful he was. How unworthy he was to be there in his presence. So when we see the holiness of God, our own hearts are exposed. It goes right along with what we're going to be looking at 
this morning, the word that God has given us today, because when our heart is exposed, some amazing and glorious things happen. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 2. For the last three weeks, we've been in the first chapter of Romans where Paul is laying out the bad news on the human condition. Like I said the first day, in order for news to be good, it's got to invade bad spaces, and Paul is creating these bad spaces here. Everyone knows that something is inherently wrong with mankind, something is badly broken. And Paul tells us exactly what the problem is in chapter 1. He says that it is all rooted in a failure to honor God. And from that root come all sorts of bad fruit, all sorts of symptoms from a fundamental failure to honor God. And at the end of the chapter that we looked at last week, we saw where Paul lists around 23 specific um, outcomes as a result of a failure to honor God. And so every problem in this world can be directly traced back to one or more of those sins there. And then he says that those who practice those things are worthy of death. Last week we looked at the fact that because God is so holy and so glorious and so worthy of honor that he cannot allow for a second the belittlement of his name by something that he created. A failure to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, which is to bring honor to God with our lives. Failure to do that results in eternal separation from him in hell. That is the death that Paul says that we are all worthy of. And here in chapter 2, Paul is essentially saying, just in case any of you still think you're off the hook after reading anything that I just listed there, let me assure you that you are not. And so let's read here the first part of chapter 2. If you would stand with me as we receive the word of the Lord this morning. Romans 2.1, Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, Wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we would be able to see you for who you are and all your holiness and all your glory. God, that in that, as painful as it may be to see ourselves in light of that, but God, knowing that it is your kindness and mercy 
that is allowing us to see those things so that you can come in and make us right. So, Lord, I pray, I pray, God, today will be a defining moment for somebody in here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Recently read a story about a man named Bishop Potter who in the early 1900s was going to take a trip to Europe. He was a wealthy aristocrat, and so he bought a ticket on one of these new big ocean liners to go across the sea, and he found out that he was to share his cabin with someone else, and so he went down to his cabin, and he met his roommate. And Right after that, he went up into the ship's office, and he asked the steward there if he could uh, keep his gold watch and his other valuables in the ship's safe. He said he, he usually doesn't make such a request, but he had met his cabin mate, and to him, he didn't look like somebody that he could trust very well. And the ship steward said to him, that's okay, Mr. Potter, I understand. Your cabin mate has already been here, and he said the same thing. That's a good illustration of what Paul is saying here in verse 1. Let's look at that again. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Paul has just listed at the end of chapter 1 these horrific sins that are worthy of death. Things like homosexuality and greed and lying and arrogance and being full of evil. And I'm sure that whoever was reading this letter, when it came to them in Rome, would read those things and probably think something along the lines of, you tell them, Paul, people like that are so disgusting. They, they are worthy of death. Keep on, brother. But here Paul is going, whoa, whoa, wait just a minute. Don't be so quick to judge someone else. When you are just as guilty. And there's one line in this verse that I found pretty interesting. He says, in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. I kind of got stuck on that phrase for a while when I was reading this. And I sat there and thought a lot about what this might mean. And my mind went to something that happened to King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm sure many of you are familiar with, it's when the prophet Nathan comes to David and informs him of something that has occurred in his kingdom. He says, oh, these two men, one really poor and one really rich, said the poor man had this pet lamb that the family loved so much. He said that the, the, fam, the lamb slept with them in the house, it ate with them at the table, the lamb played with his children. They treated this lamb like a member of their own family. The rich man, he had a large herd of sheep. And a traveler came from a long distance one day to visit the, the rich man. But he didn't want to take one of his own sheep to feed this visitor, so he went over to the poor man's house and took the one sheep that he had that he loved so much and gave it. David heard that and he responded like this in 2 Samuel 12, 5 and 6. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. 
David was absolutely enraged by this. And it sounds like he was probably more angry than someone might normally be had they had heard this story. I mean, David's calling for this man's head. He's saying he needs to be put to death. I mean, his response to this is just a little bit over the top. And so according to what Paul is saying in Romans 2.1, David's strong judgment and his strong feelings about this should be an indicator that he just might be guilty of the same thing himself. And he was. So if you remember, David fell in lust with a woman named Bathsheba who was already married to a man named Uriah, who was a soldier in David's army. Even though David had plenty of women for himself, he had wives and concubines, he wanted uh, Bathsheba. And so he told the commander of his army to put Uriah on the front lines in the heaviest part of the battle so that he would be killed, and he was. So right after that, Nathan comes to David and he tells him this story. And right after David's judgment and his outrage at this sinful act, Nathan looked at David and he said, you are the man. And David realized what he was saying and he repented, but he did suffer the consequences of his sin. You know, it's so true that we tend to have the biggest problems with things in other people that we actually struggle with ourselves. You know, as parents, there are things about us that we don't like. There are weaknesses that we are aware of. And when we see those things being displayed and lived out in our kids, we usually come down on them pretty hard for those things. A lot of times harder than we would for maybe something else that they have done. If someone's getting all bent out of shape in their righteous indignation about some particular sin, it's usually a pretty good indicator that they have a similar struggle. That's what Paul's saying here. And there are two reasons we do that. Number one is the scapegoat syndrome. We are so disgusted and ashamed of our own issue that we try to push that away and transfer that to somebody else. So that we won't maybe feel it anymore. And then the other reason is that if we can draw attention to that person's issue, then maybe we won't be found out. We can continue living in the dark while we uh, shift the, the light on somebody else. I'll tell you one area where we have been guilty of this in the church as a whole. Last week we read where Paul was talking about how homosexuality being one of the results of a failure to honor God. And although this is becoming more of an acceptable lifestyle in our society, it has been a sin that Christians have been pretty good at calling out, calling it what it is. But I believe in many ways we have gone over the top in this area in our righteous indignation. Has our overenthusiastic pointing of the finger actually been an indicator of guilt the way Paul is talking about in Romans 12.1? You bet it has. Because while we make such a big deal out of homosexual immorality, 
the very same time we're turning a blind eye to heterosexual immorality. And one isn't any worse than the other. A man engaged in physical intimacy with another woman outside of marriage is just as guilty as they would be if they were in a gay relationship. I was doing some premarital counseling with a couple who don't go to this church, and they were living together at the time, and they admitted to being intimate with one another. And I asked them if they thought that what they were doing was wrong, and they said no. And then I asked them, I said, do you think God is okay with the way you're living? To my surprise, they also said no. And then they said that they knew that it was against the Bible, but their generation now doesn't see it as being that big of a deal. Everybody does it. And so I said, so you're telling me that you're going to go with what your generation says over what God says? And they pretty much said, yeah, I guess we are. And they refused to change at all. And then they said something that I hear from so many people when confronted with the sin issue. Four words that reflect an attitude of so many. They started off with the four words, at least I'm not. And then talked about some other horrendous thing that they thought was worse than what they were doing. And that's how we try to justify our own sin. As long as it's not worse than somebody else's, then we think it's okay. But I believe Paul's whole point from the last part of Romans 1 to the first part of chapter 2 is to show us that you can't do that. That's not how it works. There is no comparing one sin over another. If you are choosing to live in one that you think is really not as bad as some other, you are just as guilty as if you were living in the most horrible kind. There are no comparisons because God doesn't grade on a curve. We belittle his name just as much with arrogance as we do with murder, which is what Paul is pointing out here. His name and his glory are just as belittled and disgraced with heterosexual sin as it is with homosexual sin. Now, hang on. Now this, at least I'm not mentality, is what leads people to believe that as long as the good things that I do in life outweigh the bad things that I do in life, then I should be okay. It's still this whole comparison thing. My good deeds compared to my bad deeds. My good deeds may not be as good as someone like Billy Graham, but at least they're not as bad as someone like Osama bin Laden. And so we put our hopes in the fact that there's got to be some range in between there that God's going to be okay with. But the truth is, there are no amount of good deeds that anyone can pile high enough that God is going to accept. Because good deeds are not what saves you. No amount of good compared to bad that will determine whether or not you get into heaven. That is going to determine whether or not God's favor is extended to you. And this is really bad news because what that means is I can't make myself right with God. 
If there are some sins that aren't as bad as others, then I could at least make sure that I stay away from the major ones. And if I do sin, make sure that I'm doing some of these minor ones that that seem to be a little more tolerable and okay. But if I could do that, then, then God would be okay with me because, yes, I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as others. That's how a lot of people think. And if that were true, then then that would mean that we have control of our own salvation by how good or bad we behave. But unfortunately, that's not how it works. The same measure of guilt falls on everyone, which means that there is nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God. No amount of good deeds, good behavior, or good intentions are going to get you in. I'll show you what else Paul is doing here. The church in Rome that he was writing to was made, made up mostly of Jews. There were Roman Jews who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost years earlier and were part of the 5,000 who were saved the day that the Holy Spirit came. After Pentecost, they went back to Rome and began meeting together and spreading the good news with others. And so the church there was made up of Jews and Gentiles, but they were mostly Jews at the time. And many of these Jews still lived with the mindset that they were God's chosen people, not because of their faith in Christ, but because of their Jewish heritage, their race. And a lot of them viewed their assumed privilege to be their main out. Meaning, even if I'm not living the way I should, I'm still good because I can fall back on the fact that I'm a Jew. And Paul is absolutely jerking this rug right out from under that belief. Verse 3, he says, you who practice these same sins, do you think that you're going to escape God's judgment? If you're doing the very same things that you judge others of being guilty of, your Jewish heritage isn't going to change that. It's not going to make up for it. You are just as guilty before God as a sinful Gentile. Paul is reiterating again the first point, which, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the sermon guide in your bulletin doesn't have anything to do with what I'm preaching today. There was some of you are like, looking at that weird. No, it's. That's a sermon from last year that somehow ended up in today's bulletin. So just don't try to go along with that one. But if it were the right one, the first point would be this. (laughs) The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We all do wicked, sinful things because we have wicked, sinful hearts. And there is nothing we can do that's going to fix that. The fact that you may be so against sin and call it out whenever you see it doesn't change the fact that your heart is just as sinful. There is no stance that you can take against sin that is going to change your heart. There is no family, no race that you can be born into that's going to address the problem of the heart issue. We are all completely helpless to do anything to change our hearts and make ourselves right before God. Here fairly recently, a man came down to meet with me at the front, and he was pretty broken and emotional. He told me, he said, I had always considered myself to be a Christian, but God has shown me that I am not. 
like many others around here, he probably thought the way they did. Raised in a Christian home, done the whole church thing. Born and raised not just an American, but a Texan. Not just a Texan, but an East Texan. In a culture where there's probably a Bible in every home and everyone here has a belief in God, at least on some level, and everyone seems to go to church at least every Christmas and Easter. Many call themselves Christians around here simply for the fact that they were born into and are a part of a Christian culture. But none of that makes anyone a Christian because it doesn't address or fix the heart issue. It doesn't change the heart. That day came, that man came down in front, and God showed him his heart. And seeing himself for who he truly was, in light of the holiness of God, he's had the same experience that Isaiah did. Woe is me, for I am ruined. And he knew there was nothing that he could do to fix that, and so he put his trust in Jesus as the only way to make him right. As the only way to change his heart. And that was the day he became a Christian. It's the same with all of us. God doesn't accept anyone simply because of the family they are born into. My children aren't getting in because they're the preacher's kids. You're not going to heaven because you're an American. God doesn't forgive your sin just because you show up at church. The problem God has with you is that you have a wicked heart. You're guilty of belittling his name and robbing his glory. And the only way that you escape the inevitable judgment of that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Next point was this. We won't know how desperately we need a Savior until we realize the sinfulness of our own heart. That's the whole point of what Paul is saying at the beginning of this letter. He is exposing our hearts and telling us there's nothing that you can do to fix that. And I'm telling you, it's not a very pleasant thing to see how wicked your own heart is. It's a whole lot easier to see the wickedness of somebody else's heart. It's not that easy to see our own. But when God does show us that, it's not a very pleasant thing to look at. But when he does show us, he's doing it as an act of his love and his mercy. That's why he shows us that. Look at verse 4 again. He says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Next point. God doesn't expose our heart in order to bring Shame, guilt, and condemnation. He exposes the sinfulness of our heart to remove shame, guilt, and condemnation. By living in sin, we're already guilty and shamed and condemned. That's what sin brings about. That is the result of that. And God could very well leave us alone right there in the midst of all that. And he has every right to do so. But when he reveals our sinful heart to us, it's because he loves us too much to leave us there. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, that leads us to turning from our way, turning from our sin, and turning to 
Jesus. He reveals our wicked heart so that we can then be released from it. Paul is saying not to take that lightly. Don't forget, you did not save yourself. Don't be so quick to condemn someone else when had it not been for the kindness and mercy shown to you, you would be in that same exact place, maybe even worse. There are a lot of people who have this twisted view of God and think that if God finds me out, he's going to be so ashamed of me, so disappointed, and he's going to reject and punish me right off. And so people will come to church and be here, just feel ashamed of being in here. Like they're not worthy to be in in church and feeling guilty over what they've done. And they think that somehow that they've got to first clean themselves up in order to make themselves presentable before God so that he will accept them and bring them in. But this whole text is showing us that you can't clean yourself up. If you realize you're in sin, that is God's kindness operating in you, being extended to you. He wants you to come to him so that he can then clean you up because he is the only one who can. He loves you too much to leave you where you are and he wants to bring you in. I'm telling you this, repentance isn't something that's just done for salvation. It's something that we need to practice ongoing every day just like Jesus isn't somebody we turn to once for salvation and then go on cruise control from there we need him desperately every day when you see someone else's sin and you feel like getting all worked up about it stop pointing the finger and getting on your soapbox and let it be a reminder to you that you still need Jesus just as much as that person does Let it remind you that, but for the grace of God, there go I. If it hadn't been for God's grace and his mercy extended to me, doing for me what I could never do for myself, I would be in that same boat. I want to share this last thing with you before we close. During the mid-1800s, there was this large group of pioneers traveling west across the prairies of Kansas, going to settle the new frontier And as they are going across slowly this wide open expanse of prairie, all of a sudden they see this thick line of smoke stretching across the entire horizon. And they realize that the prairie was on fire. And it was coming right for them because the wind was blowing hard right in their face. And there was nowhere for them to run and escape to. The trail boss quickly ordered for the grass behind them to be set on fire. And so it quickly spread away from them. And then he ordered everyone to the center of the charred ground. A little girl spoke up and said, are you sure that we will not all be burned up? And the man looked down at her and he answered and said, child, the flames cannot reach us here because we are where the flames have already been. God's judgment will rightly fall on those who refuse to honor him with their lives. Those who live for their own glory and their own honor, wanting to do life their way instead of God's way. And judgment will consume the souls of every man, woman, and child like flames across the prairie. That's the bad news. The good news 
is that Jesus came and absorbed God's wrath and God's judgment for us. For those who put their trust in him as the only way to be saved. And when we are in Christ, we escape God's ultimate judgment because in Christ, we are where his judgment has already been. When the sin of our heart is exposed, the worst place for us to run is away from God. We need to run to Jesus who is drawing us to him with his kindness and his mercy Telling us, I love you too much to leave you there in your sin. I don't want what's coming for you ultimately, so come to me. I'm the only way for you to be made right. I'm the only one who can heal and transform your wicked heart. He has already absorbed God's wrath and his judgment for our sin that he took upon himself. He hung in our place on the cross doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. He is the only remedy for our wicked hearts. When we give him our sin, he gives us his righteousness, which I'm telling you is a grossly unfair deal. But we're grateful for it. And we need him desperately every day. Let's pray. Lord, I know that there are some in here today who came looking for answers. Lord, I pray that this morning they would see that there's only one answer, and his name is Jesus. And Lord, you would expose the condition of their heart apart from you. And God, realize that you are the only remedy for it. Lord, I thank you that you are drawing people to yourself right now. And God, I pray for others in here that, Lord, there's something in here that you may have spoken to them directly, things in their heart that they need to lay before you, God, things that we need to repent of. And Lord, I admit, God, we for so long we have erroneously in the church made such a Repentance to be such a a shameful thing. But God, you show in your word, repentance is something that we should celebrate together. Because it is the miraculous power and mercy of God that is being worked in someone's life. And so Lord, I pray that today would be a day of celebration for people who are coming to you in repentance. Turning from their way and their sin and turning to you. Realizing that they can't do it. You are our only hope. There is no plan B. You are it. So, Lord, I pray that you would make that more real to somebody today than it has ever been in their life. Lord, would you have your way. Let your will be done in the remainder of this time. As your Holy Spirit ministers and leads people to you and draws them in. And God, as your people just love on one another as we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to...